I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. (laughs) The podcast where we take the books and we lock them inside of a gate and we say, you can't say anything. You can only say what we want you to say. And if you want to read the books, they're actually not locked. The key is shipping and handling. Ashley, what are you talking about? I'm saying that you can buy the books yourself or you can listen to our versions of them. And if you want to listen to our version of them, keep listening because you're already doing it. But if you don't want our version of the book, stop. Amen, sister. And Ashley, who should definitely come hang out with us as a Galentine's gift to themselves February 15th? Oh, all of our Vancouver wormies. If you live in Canada on the west side, come on up. We are headed to sunny Vancouver, BC, and I am so excited. I cannot wait to get some Lululemon. Uh Uh-oh, culture awareness. I think you guys have a lot of really shiny architecture that I actually am a huge fan of. And I've heard Vancouver looks like the future. And when I stare into the future right now, in my mind's eye, I see us hanging out there with you guys. Montreal, listen up. We have the announcement to end all announcements. We are coming to your sunny town March 7th. It is so soon. So do not forget to get tickets right now because this is not just any show. This is a fundraiser for Montreal Community Cares. It is going to have all of the fun, all of the pizzazz, all of the vibes of a regular show, except for all of the ticket proceeds are going to Montreal Community Cares. It is a group that is very near and dear to family of the podcast. And so we are so excited to be able to support. The foundation targets underprivileged youth and offers them a caring community and mentoring, tutoring, leadership, and sports programs. They've helped more than 625 kids develop confidence, discipline, and social responsibility through these programs with the goal of setting them up for successful futures. We are so excited to be able to do a live show that is for a great cause. And we are so excited to be able to visit Montreal. So mark your calendars, March 7th. It is going to come up so fast. Also, I just want to let you guys know, if you haven't been to a show yet, they're so fun. We do stand up. We do an essay. We do games. Bring a friend who's never listened. Come alone. It's not like podcast listening dependent. I feel like we have so many people that come that are like, I had never heard of you before this morning. I came. They stay and meet us at the meet and greet. It's so fun. We have such a good time. We love meeting everybody. It's not just a live podcast episode. We really like go hard, make it fun, make it interactive. And we can't wait to meet you guys. And of course, we have our tour only merch exclusively being sold at these shows which is currently our only merch, (laughs) new merch coming soon. For those of you who have not heard the unfortunate news, we did have a nightmare, which is that our merch company shut down in the dead of the night because of apparently an embezzling scandal. All of our merch is locked in a warehouse outside of Chicago. So if you ordered something that did not come, please DM us. We will send you an apology and also instructions on what to do next. Yes. Also, if you want to come hang out with us in Texas, we will be in Austin, Texas in April. At the Moon Tower Comedy Festival, it's going to be another really fun one. I do think my entire family is coming, and they Uh, were not invited, but you guys are. I like it when I'm third-wheeling my own business trip. (laughs) I like that when I'm stuck in a city and I know nobody, but now I'm at your Thanksgiving. Well, my boss will be a real bitch that weekend, and she'll say, Ashley, you can't go out with your family. You're at work. (laughs) And you're the boss's only friend. (laughs) And also, every single week, we put out a Patreon episode on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we discuss the big news in pop culture and our lives. And we are updating Shelf. There's an app called Shelf. You can post the six things that you're looking at, reading, listening to this week. And that is where 
we are posting what we're like consuming that week so you can know what to expect on the Patreon that week. We're also reading All About Love by Bell Hooks. We've been going through chapter by chapter and kind of analyzing it, discussing it, letting our lives change because of it. Vanderpump Rules is back, so that'll be on there. But check out our shelves. They are linked in the show notes, and we are excited to see you over there. And finally, that was a lot of announcements. We don't normally announce things to you guys, but we just wanted to catch up. I feel like I haven't seen you in years. I know. Well, we haven't recorded in like one whole week. Uh, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Ashley. Yeah? If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call this week's chapter? I would call this week's chapter this week and nothing more. I have been really, you know, new year, new me. I've been trying to really focus on improving my life, but like in the moment, week by week, and not looking too far into the future. I've decided that I actually don't care that much about the future. I've decided to not worry about it. My family has been really harping on me about Thanksgiving this year. It is literally January. If you're listening to this at a later date, we are currently recording this in January, and they are trying to get me to commit to Thanksgiving plans. And I just am not. I'm not committing to anything in the future other than tour dates. I say, you know what? If it ain't Vancouver on February 15th or Moon Tower Comedy Festival in April, I don't know what the day holds. I don't know what the day holds. All I know is that I'm trying to wake up, do some free writing, talk to my friends, get my work done, kiss my dog on her noggin, and have a nice life. (laughs) I love that for you. Thank you. Claire, what would you talk about in your last week's chapter? Ugh, concession. Stands? What? Concession stands? <laughs> Raisinets? <laughs> no, I concede. Oh. Something very unfortunate happened to me this weekend. Uh-oh. I spent the weekend acting as a thespian, which is actually one of my bigger fears. You and Patrick Stewart. I've said no to acting. Like people are always like, oh, would you be in the sketch? And I say no a lot because I have this like terrible fear that I'm a bad actress and it stresses me out to be that committed to something that I'm not. Being on camera is actually very scary. Me and Claire had like probably six months of arguments about getting this podcast up on YouTube because the idea of like being, I like yammering, but being viewed whilst yammering. Well, I like, I don't even mind yammering to a camera. What I don't like to be is a fraud. I don't like to pretend to be somebody that I'm absolutely not. John Stamos. (laughs) Ironically, this role that I did take on was very me-ish. It was like an influencer who gives advice. (laughs) So I was like, okay, not a stretch. I could relate. But here's my concession. It was hard. Acting? Yeah. And I like don't love being in a position where I was like, damn. I guess those actors are really doing something up there. I don't love respecting an actor, but I was left being like, There are like four or five things you have to think about at once. I will say I have always believed acting to be difficult. I think the reason that I've rubbed up against it when we read these memoirs is that they act like it's very difficult. (laughs) Like I agree that it's not the easiest thing in the world. It's not obvious to just in the way that you would go, okay, I can read this out loud. It's actually much harder to read out loud than you would have ever imagined in your life. Yeah, I believe assuming a character is hard. I believe remembering all those lines. My God, who could ever? And the choreography of it all. Okay, anyway, but also I do feel like it's worth pushing myself on because I would not say I'm necessarily somebody who's like a fearful performer, but like committing to something emotionally, I really like am scared of it. 
like I was not good at improv. Like I don't think I have a hard time being goofy, but I have a hard time being uninhibited and committing to, I don't know. It's really something that I struggle with. And so I'm proud of myself for doing it. But acting has always been a, a fear of mine. I'm glad you conquered your fear. I'm very proud of you. I, I, I conquered it, but I definitely like approached, I, it. I approached it and I took it on. And I'm sad to say that I went and I said that Jennifer Lawrence, it's not nothing. <laughs> She's not doing nothing. I like to keep it controlled. <laughs> I feel very in control when I do stand up. <laughs> Speaking of control and staying in control, <laughs> shall we dive into the Playboy Mansion? <laughs> you know, it is similar because some people were under the impression that the Playboy Mansion was the symbol of freedom, <laughs> which is something that actually they say in this book. This book is interesting to read right now in the midst of the Barbie hullabaloo. Hullabaloo. Because I felt similarly gaslit by, I guess there's just so many Americas that it's hard to like say for sure any one thing. But the way that this book was like, and of course, everybody thought that the Playboy Mansion was the bastion of civil liberties and sexual liberation for women and was like helping women everywhere. But actually, and I was like, but uh, no, what? Were we under that impression? Am I insane right now? So this week we're reading Only Say Good Things, Surviving Playboy and Finding Myself by Crystal Hefner. Who goes by her married name, Hefner. Yes. Okay, so this book came out this year, a week or two ago. And she went into the Playboy Mansion in 2007, I want to say. Because she was there for 10 years. And this is when The Girls Next Door was on TV. So this was like the Playboy renaissance. It was coming back into vogue because everyone was watching Holly, Bridget, and Kendra on E! Everyone, when I say everyone, I mean myself. I think 2008 she went. Okay. But to say that at that point in time, the Playboy mansion was still this mysterious grotto of sexual liberation, like that is not true. I guess because the show was out, I actually do think that that renewed and reinvigorated the value of the brand, especially for women desperate for fame and notoriety. Like it very much became now more than ever being in Playboy or being reassociated with Playboy can up your status. But I do think this idea that anyone thought it was good for women, that was not the prevailing thesis. Yeah. And I do want to say off the bat, I did actually enjoy it as much as I could enjoy the Playboy books make me very sad not for the women but for <laughs> not for the, the world and for the women <laughs> I don't know how to say this well I guess that's the problem is it does make me sad that there is a world where someone was still growing up in 2008 believing that the Playboy mansion was a beacon of freedom yeah I think we need to get into this in the book because this is something that I want to discuss and I think I don't have an answer, but I have things I want to bring to the conversation. Okay, so Crystal Hefner. Nay. Harris. Nay. Nay Harris. Crystal Harris was born April 29th, 1986, which is, of course, your mom's birthday. My mom's birthday. So she is going to turn 38 this year. Yes. The book opens up on an introduction about her having recurring nightmares about the Playboy Mansion. And she kind of walks you through her view of the Playboy Mansion before she ended up there and what was so toxic about it, which, again, I don't know that we needed this as an intro just because people know where she ended up. We didn't need that, like, there I was at the most important audition of my life or, like, there I was screaming down the street, blackout drunk. Like, I don't think people needed this climax of, like, and how did we get here? Because we know what the climax was. It's why people bought the book. 
Yeah, and so basically it sets the scene of, believe it or not, this picture-perfect mansion with this beautiful blonde girl was not all you thought it would be. Girl. Singular. Ladies. <laughs> bunny rabbits. Playing the role of someone else's image of you every day and every night is exhausting, physically, mentally, and in a way that feels like your soul is actually tired, like some kind of life energy battery is running low. Sometimes I imagined myself as Rapunzel locked in her tower waiting for someone to rescue her, but nobody ever did, and I had climbed into that tower voluntarily. I didn't know then that I could rescue myself. I didn't always know I needed to be rescued, but I knew I was trapped. This is so interesting, having read till the end of the book. I wonder if she would say she's rescued herself since. I think she has, in her mind. I think she's on a real journey of self-discovery, which is what really brought this book around to me. I would say the first 100 pages of this book, I felt a bit frustrated. I think she really brought it around for me, not in a way where I'd say this is the best memoir we've ever read, but in a way where I have a smidge of respect for it. I do think she takes accountability. Yes. She also says this little ditty in the intro talking about Hugh Hefner at the end of his life. So if you don't know, she was the woman married to Hugh when he died. So she was the last wife. She was like the last girlfriend, the last bunny, if you will. And she says he never talked about death up until the point where he was like actively dying. The only thing he would ever talk about was that he ended up in the slot he'd bought right next to Marilyn's. So he brought the crypt right next to Marilyn's. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. She was the first woman to grace the cover of Playboy and to appear in nude inside its pages. He put her in there without her permission after buying the photos from a calendar company. She never got a dime, and she certainly didn't have any say in whose bones would be lying next to hers for all eternity. I didn't say a word. If that's what he wanted, that's what he would get. Have always got what he wanted. Ew. Leave her alone. Yeah. He has three fucking wives and children. Why are you laying next to the bones of a woman, the only woman who didn't give you consent to be naked in your magazine? I mean, horrifying. Once upon a time, I had desperately needed Hugh Hefner, and then later, he desperately needed me. So she talks a little bit about the end of his life. In his mind, he was still the man that all other men wanted to be and all women wanted to fuck, the one with all the power and control. And she talks about being just a blonde slotted into his life. And how the mansion, she got very sick there. And she had kind of resigned to the fact that, like, she would die, too. Like, she just kind of was like, I guess this is what I signed up for and this is where I'll go. Something very interesting about this book is I guess it is a good time capsule of how much has changed in the last five or six years. And I know sometimes it can feel so frustrating, like, no progress is being made. But she talks so much about how it was important to Hugh Hafner that his legacy remained the same as it had been in his life. He wanted to be a giant of American history, respected, admired, and heroic. He was an American hero, a pioneer, a kind and humble soul who opened up his life and his home to the world. I was just like, no, he wasn't. But I do wonder how much the Me Too movement and recent kind of changes in attitude towards what we are allowed to say about women publicly has helped change the zeitgeist against him. Yeah. Like, I do wonder if for a while, I mean, I know, I know that when The Girls Next Door was on TV growing up, it was like wholesome television. Yeah. It's just so hard to believe. He's such a disgusting skis ball. I mean, she even mentions when the backlash started at the end of this book, when he died, there was a backlash against the people who were publicly celebrating him and his life. And people were saying, like, what do you mean? This was a disgusting old man. This is what I mean when I say she started out with me really not thinking she was going to be able to land this book. She talks about his death. When the doctors started suggesting he wasn't going to make it, I was confused and frantic. I desperately wanted out of the mansion, the marriage, but not like this. I mean, you married a 90-year-old man. I guess I wonder what you thought it was going to end like. That's what's so hard because I know I was young during the heyday of Girls Next Door. What was it? I guess I was 15, 16. I wouldn't say I was conscious enough aware to be like taking a temperature of the world. I know that he was very popular. 
certainly there was some awareness that he was like a gross old man. There's no way that only my household knew that. That's what I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember like getting in trouble for watching that show. My mom's like, this is a feminist household. And I was like, let me watch it, blah, blah, blah. But like, <laughs> that was the voice in my house was that the Playboy Mansion was not good for women. But I feel like this is how, what I, how I feel about Barbie. I'm like, was I the only person who grew up thinking Barbie wasn't a feminist icon? Like, how have we all been gaslit into thinking that it was always okay? So I think that where these conversations land on social media there is always like a weird, strange reaction to them that can influence the conversation in a really like negative and unproductive way. And I think it does have to do with some like time as a flat circleness, where like things that happened in the past are then held up to today's lens and certain conversations are then like thrust into a pool without context. For example, I think that with Barbie, what you were saying is like, didn't we all agree that Barbie was not a feminist icon, but now we have all these people saying, how dare you say Barbie is not a feminist icon? She made it okay for women to have jobs. But then you look at it and you say like, okay, but today shouldn't we have different standards? Like, isn't there a standard greater than women can have jobs? Like, do we not agree that like women are actually working too hard to afford childcare? <laughs> I also think it has to do with like the POV essay and this idea that everyone's personal experience was the truth. Like, yes. I grew up being like, nobody in my town, nobody in my upper middle class, coastal elite, like New Jersey town was raised to think that the Playboy Mansion was good for women or even something that you would aspire to be for a woman. Yeah. Obviously, where Crystal Hefner was raised, her mother was jealous that she got to be a Playboy bunny, that she thought this was like the greatest thing a woman could do. And I think like back in the day when people did cultural analysis, somebody would have put a little work into saying where was it at in different parts of the country or like different groups of people. And now everybody's like, um, no, everybody loved Playboy. You know what I mean? But I guess what's interesting about this Crystal narrative to me is the way that she fully bought into it. And even though obviously like I have to acknowledge that there are some women out there, there's tons of women. There's a lot of women, a lot of families, a lot of adults, a lot of mothers and fathers who would have been like, it's so great to be a Playboy bunny. I love Playboy. This is so good for us as a nation. I struggle to believe that Crystal Harris, like the way that she makes her viewpoint so universal, I like cannot believe that there was no part of her that didn't know that this wasn't everybody's standard. Like the way well, that- I think it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Like I don't think that she actually thinks that her viewpoint is everyone's standard. One of the things that I think is very hard about the Playboy books is most of these women have gone to a lot of therapy and done a lot of analysis since, and they have a really hard time writing these books in a way where you understand what they were thinking at the time because it's so heavily coded. Like, There's no way that the way these decisions are written into this book is the way they happened in her mind at the time. And that's not to say she like wasn't thinking things through at the time. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is a lot of like very careful, not even rewriting of history. No, but I do think that there is a narrative that women can fit into for sympathy. And also, this is an abusive situation. Yeah. And so I think that she's very open to saying like she volunteered for this. She walked in those doors completely on her own accord. So I think that when you're sitting there, like after 10 years of trauma and you're saying like, wait, how did that happen to me? Like you rewrite it with this very cohesive, like, well, this is the thought process. And you're like, well, no, it probably wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like the front of mind thought process. It was like after the fact, looking at what happened, being like, oh, this is 
this is how I ended up there according to the way I can like string my own thought process together. Okay. So this is, I mean, I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself, but to clarify my thinking, I feel like what was interesting and frustrating about this book and with her being like everybody in the world just wanted to be a Playboy bunny is broadly, everyone was mad at women. Everyone was blaming them. Everybody was like, victim blaming, it's your fault. And then I think we had this wave of being like, it's not the victim's fault. You know, it's the abuser's fault, it's society's fault. I do feel that this is the first book where I went and said, I understand why you felt that these were your only choices, but the truth is they weren't. Yes. They were value-based decisions where your values were being rich and famous. Yes. At what age do we hold women accountable for their values? Mm -hmm. Because it's one thing to be like, I was in this horrible situation, but I had a kid and I was scared if I left, I'd get hurt. It's different when you were like, yeah, I was dying on the inside and I was having sex with a man I didn't want to have sex with. And I was basically helping him traffic other young girls. But if I left the mansion, I'd never get to do a red carpet again. Okay, so you just have bad values and that's a choice you made. And I like see it and I do feel for her. But there are these generalizations made by her where she's like, well, everybody just wants to be rich and famous and everybody just wanted to be a Playboy bunny. I guess it plays into society's misogyny in a way that I feel doesn't give women any credit for agency or the fact that there's a lot of women who don't become Hugh Hefner's wife. Yeah, I guess I also feel that sometimes when you're involved in essentially a cult, right? Like she walked into a cult in her world where every weekend she's forced to party with hundreds of women who want her job. Everyone that she meets, that she has the opportunity to have a conversation with over these years, did want that. So like she has all this confirmation bias where like out of all the conversations she is allowed to have, the thing that she has is what everybody wants. In the world, if she had looked outside of herself for one second, there are other things to do. I mean, I guess I feel frustrated with this book the way I feel frustrated with Erica Drain, the way I feel frustrated with like a lot of these women on reality TV who are like, I had to stay in the situation because I didn't have enough money to be on my own. And meanwhile, I'm like, well, I know you're making six to seven figures from Bravo. And so I'm like, it really does come down to like what a woman's willing to put up with just to not have to be a waitress. And I just, I do think like that's where my sympathy ends. (laughs) There is a world outside of the Playboy Mansion. But it's not as glamorous. It's not as glamorous. And I also think that she like, blinders herself to yeah no and I think there's a good point that it's like when you surround yourself with people who are instilling these values what was her opportunity to change her mind anyway I guess we should get to the book I will come around and agree with you that this book delivered what you thought it would well yeah it's like if you're wondering what it's like to be married you have near at the end here's what it was like all of the disgusting gory details that being said it's the story you probably are at home guessing I found the sadness of the book not to be in like her specific plight, but in how banal and predictable it was and that this is such an average story. I'd wish there'd be someone to tell me that I didn't have to fit myself into this particular mold in order to be valuable, to be attractive, to be worthy, to be loved. I used to believe that the women who were in Hugh Hefner's orbit were glamorous and all powerful. I'd see them standing next to him in the exclusive roped off areas at clubs and parties. And I'd think they must be really important. They really must be someone. I mean, see, that is where I feel like she's rewriting history or something. Like, there's no way you saw these women who, like, were barely allowed to have a name and a face of their own and thought, like, that's someone. Well, that's, like, what I mean with the value thing of, like, she's acting like we were growing up in a time where there was only one job for women. It was mother or playmate. I'm like, 2008, there were doctors who were ladies. (laughs) We had a failed presidential run from Hillary Clinton. There was things in the air, okay? Okay, Barbie was invented in the 50s. So by 2008, women could have 60, 70, 80 different jobs. 
So the book actually starts with her first night at the Playboy Mansion. Her friend who she had been modeling with in San Diego. Can I also say modeling? It's the kind of modeling you do in San Diego. She was like a Red Bull girl. She was a Red Bull girl. I think at best she was hoping to be one of the women on the labels at a spirit Halloween. Yeah, but I also think that being a Red Bull girl or like a shock girl is really just 10, 15 steps down from being a dealer, no deal girl. And being a dealer, no deal girl is actually one step down from being royalty. (laughs) (laughs) Of England. So in that sense, there's a clear path forward. And in many ways, she was a princess of the most disgusting kingdom of all time. And she was on the cover of Playboy as America's princess, Mrs. Hefner. I hate this country. (laughs) I hate this country because I don't know that they're wrong. (laughs) They get invited to the Playboy Mansion party. You have to submit photos on this website and then they call you and they say if you can come or not. And she's so insecure. Even when she gets in, she's like, everyone here is so much more beautiful than me. She's sending photos and she's like, I'm never going to get in. And her friend is like, just send it. What's the worst that happens? They say no. And she's like, yes. She cannot believe she got in. She got in in like 10 minutes. They immediately were like, yeah, come. Someone's entire job is just to go hot, not, hot, not. Like, I mean, it happened in the minute. She is there and there's no more buses. Can you believe they weren't even going to get to bus her in? She had driven all the way from San Diego. And luckily, one bus left, takes her to the door. She goes and it's everything she thought. It's like the most beautiful place in the world over-the-top, glamorous. Everybody's a sexy little cat or a sexy little whatever. And she's so excited to get there. And I think that this is important. When she had told her mom she was going, she was living with her mom at the time, her mom said with a wistful little sigh, I guess you're about to see how the other half lives. I guess it's just like, to me, there's like a really big crevice between those halves, apparently. I don't think that they're on opposite halves, but there's so many other people. (laughs) Well, that's my thing is I'm like, if you want to just marry rich God bless. There's other rich people besides Hugh Hefner. Yeah. Ones that'll let you leave the house. I guess. Okay. So here's something that made me very sad about this book that I think she illustrated actually quite effectively. And it is that she was raised to believe that nothing she ever got would be from herself. Mm -hmm. She was very much raised to believe like you either have a man who is giving you things or you have nothing. Yeah, and I do think she was raised to believe that the most important thing you could have was wealth and fame. She was raised by like two failed musicians and they were like, if things go good, you'll get to be rich and famous. And so I do think this idea that that's the goal in life, not happiness, not respect, not like self-fulfillment. And then the other factor in it is that her parents were actually from England, which we'll get to later. But for the majority of her life, her mom didn't even have a green card. So she couldn't even work if she tried. Mm Mm-hmm. She also talks a little bit about being sexually assaulted in this chapter. It's kind of just touched on a few times throughout this book where she mentions that she had tried to live in an apartment off campus. She moved out of her mom's house and she got a roommate and the roommate was a man who tried to climb on top of her in her sleep. And so she had to move back in with her mom. And she just talks about these stories. There was always someone trying to take advantage of her. I wonder what I had done wrong, what message I had given that made me think it was okay to climb on top of me when I was asleep. Not once did I wonder what was wrong with the guys who did it. So this is really just painting a picture of like what her life has been like and like her relationship with men up until this point. She puts these stories throughout and they're never done as like a climax, but they're kind of used to illustrate that her whole life had just kind of been this feeling of being alienated and disempowered from her own body that she was constantly living and being used and touched by men in ways she never consented to and that that was just the norm for her and not that she accepted it, but just that it was so prevailing. It seemed that it was always like that, and I hated it. 
that sex could be turned against you so easily. No matter what happened when it came to sex, I wanted to be in charge. I wanted it to be my decision, my choice, but it seemed like I rarely got the chance to make that choice with someone. So now we're back at the Playboy Mansion. She feels so excited to have been chosen. Her mom like helped her get dressed before driving up to L.A. My mouth hung open, but I couldn't help it. There was no playing it cool or acting as if this was anything less than what it was, a real-life fantasy world. So she walks up to Hugh Hefner with her friend Allie. Allie like, pushes them to the front of a group of people just fawning over Hugh and the two Shannon twins he's with and this other random blonde. And Hugh looks at her, points at her, and says, come here. Her friend Allie is not invited and she cannot get Allie back there. But now it's just the four of these girls hanging out with Hugh Hefner and she can't believe she has been chosen. I don't think Allie ever talks to her again. Yeah, I don't think she ever talks to Allie either. That's true. Out of nowhere, Hugh's like, all right, time to go home. And they leave in the middle of the party and she is led upstairs. She doesn't know what's going on. We know what's going on. But the two twins take her upstairs and already she feels like she's wearing this short little skirt. People are taking photos of her from below. Hugh Hefner's obsessed with documenting his own life. And they go into the bedroom. The twins take her into a closet and give her pre-made pajamas. The twins say to her, you know, these are handcrafted in Italy, so you have to give them back. Don't get them messed up. Later, she finds out they're just like cheap nylon made down the street in L.A. But they all get around the bed and the Hugh Hefner sexual night happens, which is all the girls get their pajamas on. He puts porn on all the TVs, like old school 70s porn, she said. He played Madonna song. Yeah. I had never heard that detail before, that he was always playing like this one Madonna song. And later when she was the DJ for the night, she only picked that one song to play on repeat because she didn't want other music to be like triggering or have bad memories. And I'm like, that must be so fucking weird to hear the same Madonna song over and over again. And then, of course, the night begins. And she said the Shannon girls kind of cut out and her and this girl, Amber, were left. And her and Amber ended up becoming very good friends and I think are still friends to this day. Yeah. So she and Amber are left. They, you know, hook up with Hugh Hefner and they simulate sex on each other, which I think is very interesting First of all, that whenever we've read these books and they talk about this group sex situation, they always specify that the girls were pretending, pretending to have sex That is such other. a good point. Like, not one of those girls ever just, like, kissed. <laughs> They're always like, and we were, like, movie making out. I'm like, okay, so you're jumping on Hugh Hefner's dick, but God forbid you kiss another girl. That is a weird line that they always draw. Yeah. We all were having an orgy with a 92-year-old man, but there was nothing lesbian or gay about it. <laughs> But the gay shit was fake. <laughs> okay. I mean, honestly, between a playmate and Hugh Hefner, I feel like I know who I'd have sex with that opportunity. But... I don't know. You're in a room full of the hottest girls. But you're like, don't touch me. <laughs> Do not touch me. You're disgusting. There my turn's coming up with you. 80-year-old dick in the corner, and it is my turn to ride. It's covered in your <laughs> vagina juice already, but don't get some fresh stuff on me. That's weird, right? It's No, it's... <laughs> I thought it was weird when she was like, we pretended to do sex acts with the sex toys. She's like, we pretended to use them on each other. But I forgot that all the other girls were also like, all the girls would simulate kissing. And I'm like, okay, that's where you draw the line, (laughs) kissing with another girl. I felt sober and also like I was floating. Everything was shimmery and golden. I thought this feeling was what I'd been missing my entire life. This is something I thought was interesting too. She talks about following him home. And by home, I mean from the backyard to the house. She says, Amber and I trailed behind him like moons caught in the gravitational pull of a larger planet. I felt like I couldn't have walked away if I tried. This man was so famous and so powerful, and I had never been around anything like it or anyone like him. People called out to him, tried to touch him. His power was overwhelming. I couldn't explain it. I could only follow it. 
she talks a lot about the appeal and gravitational pull of Hugh Hefner. And something that I think is really interesting is the way people fall in love with other people's opinion of someone. Yeah. Because I do believe that there are celebrities and I believe there are powerful people who do have their own pull. And I think that pull comes from like a charisma or, or like a, a learned sense of self. Like I do think some people are naturally incredibly charismatic and gravitational. When she describes what's appealing about Hugh Hefner, there's so much description of what other people are doing. Like I followed him because he was so compelling because other people were saying his name and everyone else wanted to be near him and other people gave him so much power. Like what she's in love with is his effect on other people. Yeah. And I think she is very aware towards the end of this book, especially that she has absolutely no sense of self. Like I'm not just inserting that upon her. She says that about herself often throughout the back half of this book. And I think that that is something that is like especially someone like that is very susceptible to. Like you don't have thoughts about the moment. You say everyone else is excited about this thing. So I must be. But I do think it's like an interesting distinction between somebody who has inherent charisma and someone who has like lore. Yeah. Projected power. Yeah. Definitely. There's been guys I've liked because they're appealing. Then there have been guys I've liked because like every other one else liked them. And I also think that that is part of the space between our feelings about Hugh Hefner and Crystal's feelings about Hugh Hefner. Because I think when there is someone who doesn't have that inherent charisma, people are susceptible to different stories about them. And she was allowing herself to get immersed in this like Hugh Hefner is all powerful. And we've never been immersed in that. Yeah. Throughout this book, the way that she's like, nobody knew it but he was actually aging. And I was like, uh, we knew. <laughs> She's like, you wouldn't have guessed it. But when we were standing in the crowd when he was 89 years old, I was the one holding him up. And I was like, yeah, I, I knew. <laughs> She's like, nobody would have known. And I'm like, we could see you. But then in that sense, I'm like, I get why he picked you. Yes. You're She's perfect. very Holly-ish. And like in the way that she was like, you wouldn't think it, but Hugh Hefner wasn't a great lover. And I was like, yeah. That's actually exactly what I like. I like the way that she was like, everybody was fooled. But it is. It's so dependent on other people's thoughts. It's so dependent on other people's thoughts. So like she has to believe that people believed this yeah. thing that she first interpreted. She has to believe that the reason she fell into this cult is because other people wanted it so bad. So there is no part of her brain that can be like, yeah, everyone was kind of looking at him being like, this is kind of weird. Yeah. Anyway. Now we jump into her childhood. The first time I remember a man touching me when I didn't want to, I was nine years old. Again, this paints that picture of the way that she has just always been mistreated and taken advantage of and like assaulted throughout her life. But this person was a neighbor that her parents often left her with, who was also later arrested for assaulting his own daughter repeatedly. And when the parents found out, Crystal was like, oh, I didn't know. And they just like left it. And I'm like, why were you as parents going out all the time and leaving your daughter with just random? Like, they were not caring for her ever. Yeah. And I think she has this fantasy that when she was young, her dad loved her so much. But her dad also was not taking as much care of her as a parent needed to be taking. Right. Her parents in 1981 went to California with a one-way ticket. Neither had a green card. They were undocumented immigrants. They were from England and they came out to California to be musicians. Her dad... Well, her dad was a musician and her mom was a musician's girlfriend. Totally. Her mom already had two older daughters. For a while, it seemed like it worked. She started managing the bar and he'd play music there and they had a great life. But soon it fell apart and they ended up moving back to England where he took over another bar in England. She talks about her dad and how he was this amazing, charismatic, beautiful musician. People loved him, gravitated towards him. He always had a crowd around him, wanting to chat him up to be near him. 
He made everyone feel warm and welcome, like he had sunshine emanating from him. My parents seemed to enjoy running the club, but they still dreamed of California. So eventually, they go back to California. You know, they're not doing great financially. Her dad is a struggling musician. Her mom is taking care of the kids. And they can't get real jobs, really, because they are undocumented immigrants. And then her dad starts getting these headaches. They've been going on for a while. Finally, he goes to the doctor and is like, oh, there was just sinus congestion and everybody kind of moved on. But one night, she woke to the sound of someone moaning and then screaming in pain. She runs down and sees her dad with his head in his hands, pressing his hands into the side of his head. This time, the doctors found it a brain tumor. It was cancerous, and the operation to remove it would be complicated. He was given a 50-50% chance of living through the operation. And then when they went to do a CAT scan to check the rest of him, they found out that it was actually too late, that the cancer had spread all throughout his body. And he was given six weeks to live. And so then her mom sent Crystal out to go visit her older sister. So at this point, her older sister is from her mom's first marriage, had moved out. And one of them was living in Oklahoma. And they sent Crystal to go stay with her sister for a week. I think they just like wanted to get her away from the situation. And while she was out there, Crystal gets her period for the first time. And then they get a call saying, like, you need to come home. It's actually much less than six weeks. Her dad passed away very quickly. Being a woman meant pain and blood. It meant watching someone you love die. It meant grief and loss. Her mom went into a very dark place. I lost my dad. And then my mom lost herself. With my dad gone, everything fractured. It was like removing a weight from a set of scales that had been previously balanced. They ended up finding a one-room apartment and sharing a bed. And her mom just stayed in that bed for a while crying. And then one day she woke up, put her makeup on and said, I'm going to find a boyfriend. So that's the thing is like she was trained from a very early age that there is nothing you can do for yourself. If you want to get back on your feet, you need a man to get you there. And this pattern persists so heavily throughout Crystal's life. So the first stepdad is Lyle. He was a sports announcer. They really considered him rich. They moved into his house with his younger daughter. Although she never felt welcomed, she felt like she was yelled at all the time, that he didn't really want her there. Lyle thought Playboy was the height of culture and refinement, and my mother didn't seem to disagree. If she was bothered by his office full of nude women, she never let on. She went along with what Lyle wanted. I watched, and at 13, I learned that the best way to survive in this world was by appealing to men. So she goes to a really fancy school because of the district Lyle lives in, and she thinks that they're doing well, but then she gets to school, and these kids are wearing designer. They're driving their own sports cars. It's like fancy school. Mm-hmm. She feels bullied and excluded. I was looking at the women on the cover of Playboy and Lyle's office. On television, I saw Jenny McCarthy, Anna Nicole Smith, and Pamela Anderson. These gorgeous bombshell blondes with lush cleavage who had the world at their feet. Pamela Anderson, now that was a mold I could fit myself into. She seemed perfect, the ideal woman. Okay, this part made me roll my eyes a bit because, again, I feel like there's just a real over-analysis here where I'm like, well, that's not how people think. She's talking about being bullied at school. These people are horrible, mean, and cruel, and they take this all for granted. Why do they have so much? I'm a nice person. I tried to be kind. What did I have to do to get even a fraction of this? I don't need a mansion. All I wanted was a real home, a place to feel safe, a place where I belonged. I think this exact sentence is such a good example of why I was a bit on edge with this book because there's such a pushing of a narrative. And I do think she, I mean, she has had horrible traumas happen to her, losing her father. She's been constantly assaulted. Of course, I understand what she went through and I do sympathize with her. I think the inch too far that she takes it that I have a hard time with is the world building of acting like there was only one option in the whole world. Yes. I think it's this idea that like, yeah, I grew up when Pamela Anderson was on TV too. There were other options. Just this idea that women were only ever told that they could be playboy. That just wasn't true. I know I was there. 
every rich kid at school was bullied me. Every single one. Every kid at school bullied you? I guess I think that this is like a retroactive rewriting of the thought process because I do think she just like felt lost and didn't know where she belonged. And so she kind of felt that like if she had this financial security. And I agree. And she could no, figure and I it agree. Out. And she's right. And I do feel for I see how she was like primed to be put in this horrible position. She had like no support at home. Nobody was looking out for her. And she was being given this like horrible right. model of behavior. And 100%, I think it was coming like the call from, was coming from inside the house. Like these were the values passed down to her by her parents. Her dad died. That's tragic. Her mom did not have the ability to take care of a daughter and it did not like show her the ropes. The idea that in the 90s, we were raised that women only had one option. It was to become human sex objects. Well, that's what I'm saying is I think that's written in to like justify yeah, no, the I way things you. went. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And that's where, but that's the part of the book that I struggle with because I'm like, who are you fooling? Herself. How could women have been told they could only be sex objects? We had Barbies. <laughs> You're telling me that this woman's life was bad when there was a Barbie on the shelf? A beacon of feminism? I know. It's hard to believe. Teacher Barbie did not teach her enough. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so she is very insecure. She thinks that a big problem with her social life is that she's a virgin. And this like made me feel very sad for her. She decides that she needs to lose her virginity, but she doesn't want to be embarrassed by having her hymen break with a man because she doesn't have a man that she trusts enough to share this experience. She picks a guy. She decides to kind of de-virginize herself medically, I guess, and then have sex with an actual man in order to kind of finish the process. With the messy part out of the way, I decided to do it for real with Liam. She has sex with this guy named Liam and then he breaks up with her for like someone at church and she's devastated. I mean, she just doesn't know what love is. She just thinks she needs a man for support at all times. Otherwise, she is not enough of a woman. So Liam breaks up with her and that breaks her heart. But then she meets Greg, who she actually loves. Greg was like a beam of sunlight. He smiled with his whole face, showing all of his white teeth. They have like a beautiful young relationship. I was happy with him. I felt safe. I could be myself. I could be goofy and nerdy and hang out with him in sweatpants and no makeup. He made me feel like the most special person in the world. With Greg, I felt beautiful. Material things didn't matter to Greg. He didn't care what people had or didn't have. He saw good in everyone and forgave the bad. And so and from the way she describes Greg, you know that he is not long for this world. I was just a girl who wanted to hang out with my boyfriend. My mom, always the cool mom who preferred to act more like my best friend than a parent, would drive me to Greg's house at night and help me sneak him out. That's not great. She'd drop us off at the beach so we could run out into the surf in the moonlight, the warm water up to our ankles. Or she'd let us come back to our house and stay up late watching movies and eating snacks. Shocker to no one, Greg's parents did not love Crystal. And can I say, it's not Crystal's fault. It's Crystal's mom's fault. Crystal's mom did her no favors by being like, let me sneak your boyfriend out of his house. It doesn't help you to be the household that nobody can trust their kid to go to. Yeah. Like that is inappropriate to sneak another person's child out of their own home. I agree. It was magical and blissful. And then I got pregnant. So they go to get an abortion. When it was over, I had a juice box and Greg took me home. We didn't talk about it too much, but everything felt different between us. Greg was concerned about me, but I was distant. Our pure, sweet love suddenly felt complicated. These negative thoughts ran in an endless loop in my head after the abortion. I would look in the mirror and think, no wonder Greg's parents don't like me. I don't even like me. There was nothing to like. I told Greg we needed to end things, and then I stopped taking his calls. And then he joins the military and is deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah, but this line is maybe the craziest in the whole book. Greg went away to boot camp and was quickly deployed to Afghanistan. I deployed also, but differently into a world of self-destruction. That world was called Owen. 
Can you imagine being like, this man was my Afghanistan? Especially because Greg dies in Afghanistan. I felt that line was a bit out of pocket, to be honest. Like, there were parts of this book that felt a bit dramatic in their, like you said, world building. And I do feel like to be like, Greg went to Afghanistan. I went to Owen-ganistan. So Owen is a 25-year-old who throws high school parties at his house because he can buy alcohol because of gun. He is 25, not in high school. Not a good guy, but like not war. <laughs> um, I will say in this country, there's a war on young women. That's so true, actually. I guess she's so astute. Being with Owen made me feel worldly and special. I was suddenly cool with the kids at school because my boyfriend was the one with the house. But she's still so sad about not being with Greg. She still loves him so much. She can't believe that even though she broke up with him, he took it. I told him it was over and he believed me. So she starts dating Owen. She's like living with Owen at this point. She's partying all the time, going to bed at 5 a.m., trying to get to school. Reminded me of Priscilla. Yeah, and Kendra kind of. And Jennifer Grey. Yes. I love it when parents go, well, what could I do to stop her? She was 15. <laughs> she was 15 with a boyfriend. You can't control people forever. So Owen encouraged her to become a model. So that's how she kind of gets into that world. She also enrolls in San Diego State University. And then her and Greg start emailing again. And there's a little conversation about them maybe getting back together when he gets back. But then the next day, Memorial Day 2007, his Humvee drives over a bomb and he does not survive. I wondered if this was my punishment for doing drugs and partying and living with Owen and being a part of his seedy world. I wondered if Greg's parents were right, that I was bad and I didn't deserve him. And she's thinking about him as she's walking up to Hugh Hefner's bedroom, saying, well, maybe if I made myself appealing enough to the outside world, to powerful people, then maybe I could survive in this world. Maybe I would be okay. I was 21 years old and I'd already lost the only two men I'd ever loved. I'd already lost myself. I thought I had nothing left to lose. And this part made me so sad because... I can see how she felt that way, but I think that it would not have led her to Hugh Hefner's bedroom if there had ever been someone in her life who told her that, like, there was still other things. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like that's, like, the tragedy of all of it is that there wasn't. It is really sad, and I get how she ended up here. Mm -hmm. I guess after reading Holly's book, after reading this book, after even reading Isabella St. James's book, it is so clear who Hugh Hefner goes after. She has a line in this book later where she talks about how Mary, the Playboy Mansion secretary, said to her, he always keeps the ones with the broken wings. Like, who ends up living in the Playboy Mansion? It's girls who don't think they had another choice. But it's also girls who are like, the highest thing a woman can do is be a playmate, and I'm going to mm -hmm. be that thing, which is like the interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Like, these are girls who are like, I'm so worthless, but I also, in my world of values, have ascended to the height. Yes. So we're back in the bedroom, and after that night together, Hef invites her and Amber to come back and spend the entire weekend at the Playboy Mansion, and they are over the moon. They go to get a change of clothes from her car, and they go back to spend the weekend at the mansion, and she is in heaven. She, like, can't imagine going back to regular life. She's like, it was a hotel. Any food you wanted, they just had it. You go to the grotto. They have ellipticals. They have an entire zoo. There's a tanning bed. For that whole weekend, we got a taste of what it was like to live as the 1%. I tanned in the tanning beds. I swam in the pool. I sat in the coveted spot next to Hef at movie night where he stood up to introduce the old classic black and white film they were showing. I felt like living 24-7 at a five-star hotel. And most of all, when I was with Hef, I was a person of interest. I quickly learned that if I wanted to be a part of this world, the trip to the bedroom at the end of the night with all these other girls was the price. This was the rent. And I was hoping that if I paid it, if I paid extra even, I'd be allowed to come back again. 
So she goes back home to her mom's house in San Diego. She feels like the world is just less exciting now. She's seen the Playboy Mansion and now coming back to San Diego. It feels boring. It feels like nothing. She's always shocked by men in this way that I am like. What did you think was going to happen? The CEO of some like energy drink company that she was a model for was like, hey, I have a beach house that I'm not going to use this weekend if you want to go up and hang out with your friends. And then surprise, surprise, he showed up in the middle of the weekend being like, I came back early. Let's hang out by the pool. And he just met up with them naked. And she's like, I cannot believe the way that men are always doing this to me. And I'm like, okay. Because she is told that like she can't get anything for herself. Like she has these odd expectations of what other people should just kind of give her for free. This is not the first time that someone is like, hey, have my house. And then they want something in return. And she's like, why can't I just have your house? I don't ever want to be like, well, what'd you think? But I'm also like, some of these things aren't explicit, but they're implied. I'm not saying someone should like grabbed you off the street. But if a man says, why don't you go to my house? I met you at a event where you were wearing a bikini. Yeah. And I'd just love for you to use my house for free. I guess the thing is, you don't owe these men anything. And she left and she got out of there. So like nothing happened to her here. She goes, but I kicked myself, caught again in the same dumb trap. It was just like every other time. It made me tired. There's kind of the suggestion in the book that this just is the world for women. And I know that that's not true because I've lived it. And I know that the world is really hard on women. And I know that there are things that are very dangerous. And like, it's harder to be safe as a woman. But this idea that every single day of your life, you just like can't even go tan naked at a man's beach house without him thinking that you'll hook up later. I'm like... Yeah, you know what I do? I get a job and me and my friends sleep eight to a bedroom and we get a hotel in Miami and like the things this girl will do to not be a waitress. And the other thing is she's like in San Diego. You don't need a private beach house. There's a beach. These things aren't happening out of nowhere. They're happening because of her obsession with like getting to live a glamorous life. And that is the trade-off. That's what it is. She is conflating the actual difficulties of women in this world Of which I'm not saying she's not experiencing. Like, of course, it's all one patriarchal society that's even been set up in a way that this could happen to Crystal. But pursuing at all costs the life of the arm candy, she cannot believe that she's constantly being exploited and objectified as if that's like the problem we all have. We're all just trying to get to a beach house for free. We're all just trying to find the rich man that'll let us hang out without trying to sleep with us. And that is a choice she's making. Those are values that she is pursuing. Right. Back in real life, thinking about running the gauntlet of jobs again left me feeling even more hollow and deflated. I was studying psychology, but I didn't want to be a psychologist. I had so many of my own problems that I couldn't even imagine adding other people's problems to the mix. That made me laugh because in the intro, she talks about like driving through San Diego later and like looking at who she used to be and be like, there's the college where I studied psychology. I used to dream that one day I'd be a psychologist who would just help people with their problems. And I'm like, That's not true. Yeah, you did not want to be a psychologist. And so that's the truth of this book is that she didn't. She always wanted to be a glamorous, beautiful woman who had a glamorous, expensive life because she was so beautiful. And I get why that happened to her. She was like not put in a position where she was able to grow her own self-esteem. And she was like given all these bad examples in her mother. But what I have a hard time with is this idea that all women Wanted these things. Wanted these things. And I think that one of the big problems is that she did feel extremely lost in her life. Like, I think that this is, again, something that almost every 21-year-old in the world can relate to is, like, being in college and studying these things and being like, I don't actually care about this. What am I going to do with the rest of my entire fucking life? Mm -hmm. 
But with those feelings, she said, there's nothing I can do about this. She thought this is unique to me. But like what she thinks is not unique to her and it is, is this idea that she's like, and I will do whatever it takes to keep having free room service. Yeah. That's what I think is like, I don't think she thinks this is a unique story, but in the way that she doesn't think this is a unique story, she thinks we're all out here going, well, of course, if you could have peanut butter and jellies on speed dial, you would have done it too. You would have had orgies every night with random women too, because there was a tanning booth in the basement and nobody's ever said no to a free tanning booth. Yeah. To me, it just really feels like she just wanted luxury, did not want what she was doing that day and was like, I don't know what to do next. And then the phone call came. Hugh Hefner calls her and says, do you want to move into the mansion? And she's like, oh, well, there it is. That's what it is. It's the difference between women who feel that they have to do whatever it takes to survive. And I think that there were points in her life where, you know, her mom can't get a job. They're alone. It's just the two of them. There have been times where I think they probably were doing whatever it took to survive versus doing whatever it takes to live a life of extreme luxury. And that is where I'm like, well, that's yeah, a preference. So her mom drops her off at mansion. What? <laughs> I'm so, oh, my God. The lack of article before that word was so off-putting to me that I, I was imagining a club in L.A. I feel like Lauren Conrad and Lo Bosworth went to mansion. I know. And like got is that drunk. not what it feels like? Being like, my Crystal, you're late for mansion. <laughs> I did actually at one point notice like the way that the word mansion is never met with adjective. It's lowercase m, so it's not a proper noun, but they are like at the mansion. We were we were mansioning. It is sometimes I'm like, it's also a home. Yeah. It's a house. It's actually kind of an apartment complex. We were at the pop-up shop. <laughs> and she does acknowledge parents are supposed to be guardrails, weren't they? In place in order to keep you from driving off the road, but she'd never really been that kind of parent. For better or for worse, she was in the car with me. You know, she said with a whiff of envy, I could have been a bunny. I went to the Playboy Club in London and they loved me there. She didn't say anything to me like, what about school? Even if she had, I doubt it would have registered. School, I figured, would always be there. Okay, so first she gets there. She's girlfriend number four, maybe, but she gets put in room number five. As you guys know, there's a hierarchy to the rooms. And she loves it. Life at the mansion was just as dazzling as it had been during the first weekend. And then she's like, celebrities turned up regularly. Okay, the celebrities that she then proceeds to name are like some of the most pathetic names I've ever heard in my life. She's like, Corey Feldman was always there. Oof. I, I, I think he could have been homeless, dude. Uh, he might have I think it was the one too. time a week he was getting a shower in. Pauly Shore, Bill Maher. Oh, God. Yuck. David Hasselhoff. What was Paris Hilton doing there all the time? What could be fun for her there? I guess nothing in her life is fun. It's all brand building. Yeah. She also acknowledges right off the bat that Hugh Hefner is very specific about things and very mean if the things he's specific about are not done the way he wants them to be done. So if his napkin wasn't folded right on his plate where he ate the same meal every single day, he would have a fit. But I was not interested in thinking too much about that. I was looking at the world of Playboy through rose-colored glasses. One of the first criticisms she receives from him is about her weight. She's 134 pounds, and in this house, that was unacceptable. She puts on the freshman 15, essentially, when she gets there. I think that happens to a lot of them, that they're like, oh, my God, unlimited food and hanging out. I, I mean, what would you do if you had unlimited room service of any food you would ever want and then you just, like, could hang out by the pool all day? He says to her immediately, looks like somebody needs to tone up. And then he, like, touches her body. And this was, like, in the middle of one of their nightly orgies. So she loses weight really fast. She just kind of stops eating because that was the most humiliating thing that's ever happened Can to anybody. Can I say something? Hmm. It's so not man who loves to have sex with women of him 
to be in the throes of an orgy and be like, is your butt looking a little bit fatter? Is that ass a bit thick today? I'm pretty sure guys who actually like women like a little body. It's so funny to like have a woman bouncing on top of you and being like, uh, how many rolls of fat are on your stomach? Oh, God. I mean, it is literally every woman's worst nightmare. That's like what we think men are thinking, but they're not thinking that unless they're awful. Like this is not sexy sex. It's business sex. Hef's power never waned no matter where we were or who we were with. Sometimes I felt secondhand embarrassment for Hef when he was imperious and dismissive to staff in the mansion and servers outside the mansion. I would be kind and extra attentive. So that is the thing is like these are very contradictory statements to me. If his power was like all encompassing, then there would be no embarrassment that you were sensing. Yeah, I guess that's like part of buying into it. She's just like everywhere we went, Hef's power never waned. That's not true. He just wasn't the most powerful man in the world. No. She also says she tried to like buddy up to him by being vulnerable and talking to him about her life. And she quickly learned that he does not care about your life at all. Absolutely do not talk to him about anything but himself. She noticed that the twins who were kind of like the top girlfriends at the time, but there was no girlfriend number one at the time, the twins would leave as early in the morning as possible. And she was very interested in being as involved in mansion life as possible. So again, very Holly-like. That's kind of how you shuttle yourself up to girlfriend number one is you be the girlfriend who's willing to be girlfriend number one. Yeah, I mean, you be, what is it, like the prisoner that guards the other prisoners? Yeah. The entire mansion revolved around his every whim. It was stressful at times, but I learned as much as I could as quickly as I could. The twins and the other girls who shuttled in and out tried to take as much as possible from Hef as quickly as possible. They played the transactional game well, but I was desperately trying to make a home in a mansion with Hef I think she recognizes now. I think she would say, I should have taken more because I gave him everything. But there is that part of her sickness where she does look at the women who tried to take more and she was like, they're so greedy. Yeah. As opposed to the man who thinks he should like own everybody's life. Yeah. I mean, the way that she got so little for giving 10 full years 24-7, she talks about it like it was a job. She views it very specifically as a job. But jobs pay people. Also, you don't live at your job. Yeah. It's it's like she knows on the one hand that she has Stockholm Syndrome, but on the other hand, if you let her talk, you can hear the Stockholm Syndrome. Knowing it is not enough. She talks a lot about Mary, Hef's longtime assistant who was with him until the day she died. And she's the first person I've seen kind of like shit on Mary, I think. Yeah. She talks about how Mary loved the power she had by being next to Hugh. When people would say, oh, Hef's true love was Mary, she liked that. She liked being his guardian. I wondered sometimes if she had ever loved him more than just as a boss. She like really pitted the women against themselves and took a lot of pride in finding out all the gossip between the women and then like keeping Hef in the loop. What a disgusting woman, huh? I mean, Imagine dying, having like to your last living breath been like, I helped traffic young girls for this poor innocent man who wanted nothing more than to own them. (laughs) One of Mary's jobs was to make sure there were always enough girls at the parties. She was also there to smooth over all the transitions to facilitate getting certain girls into the mansion and then upstairs. She anticipated problems with the girls so that Hef never had to deal with them. I mean, ew, I'm sorry, Mary, but that is not a noble cause. To be like, God, if I fail at my job, which is Hugh Hef not having his orgy that night, like, who am I? She also would have these card games at her house on Monday night where she would get the girls to open up. And then if they opened up about something that wasn't in Hef's best interest, that's why I'm having such a hard time saying the word Hugh. It's because he goes by Hef. Yeah. I was like, why does Hugh sound so weird and so struggle off the tongue? Okay. If it wasn't in Hef's best interest, she would get them kicked out the next day. Like if a girl said, oh, I'm really sad or like I miss my mom or something. The specific example is a girl saying, I miss my boyfriend. (laughs) 
but they weren't allowed to have any thoughts or feelings. I wanted to do it flawlessly. I was to be happy, fawning, and there when I was needed. Hef's interests were my interests. My interests were irrelevant. Every brain cell was firing towards what else can I do for him? How can I smooth things along for him? What will he need next? I was desperate to please, to be accepted, to belong, and it became my superpower. All of us in the mansion were desperate for something, power, status, protection, security. I was desperate to be considered worthy, worthy of love and taking up space, which I never believed I could grant myself. I needed permission. This I felt was very honest and astute for her to know like everyone was there because they needed something and she's acknowledging what she needed. For her, worthiness meant like wealth and power and proximity to wealth and power. And that is not a noble set of values. Yeah. And like specifically being seen as like the sexiest woman by the most powerful man who deems women sexy. Yeah. She only got one small section of the whole house that was hers and hers alone. It's kind of a huge mistake becoming the first girlfriend because you give up your bedroom. Yeah. So she was basically always under watch because she was either by Hef's side where he was watching her or she had to like leave to use the hallway phone where the staff could watch her. But she did get a small closet that had a vanity in it that had been Holly's vanity with her initials in it. And she was deeply insecure about stacking up to Holly. Yeah. So essentially this closet, this vanity like in a cupboard basically was her only space. Because when you're girlfriend number one, you share a room with Hef. And when you share a room with Hef, you don't have a room. She starts shooting Girls Next Door. So this is the first season after Holly, Kendra, and Bridget have left. It's now going to be Crystal and the twins. And she finds out that Hef gets $400,000 an episode and she gets nothing. And he's also barely even in the episodes. The episodes mostly center around the girls. They do all of his filming on one single day so that he doesn't have to work too hard. I'm like, what is the work? What is the work? Also, they take the time to really stoke a rivalry between Holly and Crystal. I don't really think there was one. I think Crystal was insecure about, she says, Holly always looked perfect. I think they really did a good job stoking it on the show because I remember in Holly's book her being like, and another thing about Crystal hating on me. Yeah, I don't think Crystal thought about Holly that much. Also, I think Holly was way more in it than Crystal was. Yeah, because Holly was at that point outside of the mansion and like, kind of was like, why wouldn't he marry me? And then Crystal moves in and they like feed her a couple of lines about Holly. And I think those lines really sent waves into Holly's orbit. Holly thought I was out to tear her down and the tabloids picked up a story about us being in a cat fight. She says a lot of things where I'm like, you, I don't think know what you're saying. She talks about the lesson from Pretty Woman. We all grew up watching Pretty Woman. At the end, that movie wasn't about Julia Roberts, what Julia Roberts did for a living, or even the money. It was a happily ever after love story, a modern day, more edgy Cinderella. And there was a clear message that money and a powerful man brought you respect, value, dignity, and saved you from the creepy hands of Jason Alexander's character. I haven't seen Pretty Woman in a long time, but is that what it's about? Yeah, the happy ending is that now she's protected by a rich guy. Yeah. Oof. But also that's a weird movie because it was actually supposed to be like a gritty, dark film. But Julia Roberts was just so charming. They were like, fuck it. Make them fall in love. <laughs> I think she was supposed to die at the end and actually be a drug addict. Oh. But they were just like, this girl's so cute. She is so cute. So she shares something with Holly. Like her and Holly are so similar. It's really weird. The exact personality that works in a woman for being girlfriend number one. For all of his worldliness and power, he was naive to the fact that people were always trying to take advantage of him. He was not. It wasn't a part he played. He genuinely couldn't imagine someone not having his best interests in mind. I guess on some hand, I believe that he was such a narcissist. He like can't imagine that anyone didn't like him. I also believe that he was such a narcissist and so disrespectful that he couldn't imagine a woman would even be able to be sneaky. 
Yeah, but the thing is, I don't think that the girls were sneaky. I think she's like, he didn't even know that these girls didn't love him. They just wanted money and stuff. Like, I'm sure he knew that they just wanted money and stuff. It's just like within his power dynamic in this world, he's invented it doesn't matter because he has absolute power. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, sure, Crystal could be just after him for his money and stuff. But, like, what was she getting overall? Like, she was still having to fold into the narrative that he wanted in order to get those things. So he was still winning. So they go on a couple of trips that first year, which was really exciting because she thought that this was going to be a job that had a lot of travel. But Hugh Hefner is actually quite agoraphobic. So this like year of vacations was outside of the norm. And when they were on a trip, he just wanted to stay in his room and watch movies. And because she was girlfriend number one, she just had to stay in the room and watch movies with him. She would sometimes try to suggest that they would go do things. And to even suggest something or ask something of Hef is a big no-no. Yeah. You just have to predict what he wants and assume that whatever it is that he's saying he wants, say that you want that too. But when it came to life outside the gates, his attitude was that we had everything we could ever possibly want inside them. The party came to us. Celebrities came to us. People were desperate to get into the world we lived. We had it all. At one point, she finds out that there are cameras in his bedroom and he films the orgies. And she's like, what the fuck? And then he was like, well, it's my bedroom in my house. And then he claims he had them all destroyed after the Pam and Tommy thing. I find for a man whose whole thing is sexual freedom and nude photos and pornography, how interesting that his biggest fear would be himself getting leaked on tape. Also, for your whole thing to be sexual freedom and you're taking sex tapes of women without their knowledge. Awesome. So she talks about living in the mansion and how Sundays were the worst day of the week because that was the pool party where the most people were invited to come hang out, fun in the Sunday or whatever it was called. And she would have actual panic attacks about having to go outside and socialize with all these people on Sundays because every single person there was vying for her job. It was all hot girls who dreamed of becoming playmates. Most of my relationships with other women were toxic and fake. They threw their drinks on me, stole my clothes. One girl even whacked me in the back of the head with a giant rainbow lollipop because she couldn't get Hef's attention. Every single Sunday, week after week, I could feel my panic attack waiting at the edges of my permanently happy smile. I'd sneak away to my little space and try to deep breathe the feelings away. I would berate myself internally for being ungrateful and spoiled. I was angry at myself at this weakness that had come out of nowhere and threatened to derail everything. And I also think that that is very interesting that she acknowledges part of her belief that she had to stick this out was that lots of people wanted the job. Half had done so much for me, changed my life, and I couldn't comprehend my own mental state. How could I feel like my world was only getting smaller and smaller when I should have felt like the whole world was at my feet? I mean, she's in a cult. That's why. She has her mom come visit, and she says, right now in this house, she was the closest she had ever been to what she and my dad would, had always wanted, worked for, dreamed about. I suddenly felt ungrateful and spoiled. So, I mean, it does distinctly come from her parents' values, and then, like, her mom especially, that this is the goal in life, is to be where you are. Yeah, and the thing is, she wants to be able to open up to her mom and tell her mom about how sad she is, but her mom is so in awe of the mansion. She can't, and you know, you really get the picture. She went into the mansion at 21 years old. She did not have a lot of female friends or any for that matter. I think the only female friend she's ever had is Amber, who she met her first night at the Playboy Mansion. So there is no one she can talk to. She can't talk to anyone at the mansion because you don't know who's going to be a snitch. She has no friends. Her mom thinks her life is awesome. It's very sad. No, I mean, it's so sad. My first foray into plastic surgery had been the breast augmentation I got in college when I was modeling and realized I needed a little more oomph in that department. Her mom suggested a surgeon. Her mom had been getting a little nips and tucks done here and there. And she says this doctor that she went to, we have come across so many god-awful 
breast implant doctors. That is like really a suspicious thing to want to do, to be honest. He didn't ask me what size I wanted or really anything at all. I signed the forms, took the pre-surgery antibiotics. The day of the surgery, he drew on my bare torso with a special pen and then had me count down from 100. He like picked how big her boobs were. He did them up through her abdomen so that she wouldn't have scars. But when she got home, something went wrong and she had to be sent back to the hospital. Yeah. And so then when she gets to the mansion, she's feeling very insecure about her nose because of the season of Girls Next Door that they shoot. She doesn't like how she looks on camera. And so then she talks to Hef and, you know, he has a guy on call who just does all the girls. And she also had been having problems with her implant. It turns out her body was rejecting it. So she goes under the knife. They do her nose. They redo her boobs. And they're also like, hey, while you're down there, do you want liposuction? And she's like, totally. So she just goes and gets like a full workup. Years later, I would regret all of this, but I wanted nothing less than the holy grail of the Playboy world, Centerfold. I wanted it badly. And she's rewarded. She gets to be Centerfold for December, Miss December 2009. This is everything she's ever wanted. She really thinks like this is something solid that now can't be taken for her. Even if she gets dumped by half, even if she leaves the mansion, she'll always be a Playboy playmate Centerfold. It also means that she can get paid independently from the mansion for like appearances as a playmate. It's kind of the only job you can get as a woman at the mansion where you can do your own thing and not be fully dependent on Hef. It was a weird blend of satisfaction and regret. The women on the cover of Playboy had seemed confident and powerful, and I thought I would feel the same way. But at least this magazine cover was forever. So she talks a bit more about the way Hef would build women up and then cut them down, like build them up by saying you're accepted by me and then cut them down by just always saying mean things about them after that, honestly. She constantly felt compared to other girls, and she knew it was a game that Hef was playing on purpose. This part I did not like. She talks about the way that they would find fresh girls at these parties. I don't know. I honestly feel like this could have been left out. I think for her to express her qualms, but then still be like, well, I had to do it, though. It's just really bad. I felt torn. Part of me wanted to turn them down for their own good, but I also knew it was going to be someone coming up. So it might as well be someone who really wanted to go. There seemed to be an endless stream of women desperate to get into the mansion. It never slowed down and it solidified the feeling even more that I couldn't possibly walk away. They would like look at thousands of pictures by half size to pick out like different girls who wanted to be in the magazine and who should be invited to the parties and like to see who would come up to the room. She also then tells this weird story about this bird cage in Hef's bathroom where the lovebirds kept dying. Like they would match up, fall in love and then die immediately. And they just kept replacing them every couple days. And so finally she went in there to investigate why these birds were dying. Because she's like, okay, besides the fact that there's no natural sunlight in here, what else? And she looks at their water bottle and realizes there's something broken. And these pets were just dying of thirst constantly. No one took five minutes to look at it and check it out. And it was like very easy to fix. And so they were just like shipping in birds and letting them die every day. The birds had been dying of thirst this whole time. And the mansion staff kept replacing them bird after bird. Who are the birds? They're literal birds. But also, one thing that she mentions, this, I will say, was the first revelation, the first I've heard about this, the fact that Hef was an opiate addict. I think that we could have assumed there was something, but I don't think anyone has ever come out and said that he was fully just addicted to pain pills and was supplied them constantly. Yeah, it started because of his back pain originally legitimately, but Hef's addiction to pills was a well-known secret of the house and one nobody ever talked about. He had something called an earthquake reserve which was just like a ton of Percocet that he had in addition to his monthly allowance of Percocet. So he was just high all the time. And she's like, it's why I think he fell asleep more and more towards the end. His hearing was also shot. There was research that suggested that taking copious amounts of Viagra caused hearing loss, but Hef would give up a limb before he gave that up. She talks about 
getting allowance at the mansion. How much was Kendra and them getting? I wonder if there was any inflation taken into consideration. They each got $1,000 a week cash, but you had to go and ask for it. And he had to be like, I guess you've been a good girl and count it out in cash. It was like a weird sex ritual that he does. She says she hated that part specifically that she had to ask for the money. He made us wait and wait we did, hands clasped like good girls. I felt terrible. I felt like a hooker. Hot shame rose inside me, my cheeks burning. I realized my face was turning bright red. A little voice inside me whispered, what are you doing? The way that a playboy girlfriend, a Hugh Hef girlfriend will always, will stay looking down on a sex worker. I felt like a hooker. What were you, Crystal? You were a woman having sex with a man for money. Who do you think you're better than? Yeah. What is this judgment? Oh, God, because it would have been so bad to be a sex worker. It is funny the way that they're all like, God, sometimes the way he made me feel, he made me feel disgusting, like a stripper. Anyway, I got naked for the Playboy Centerfold where they paid me. (laughs) Another gross thing is that he used baby oil for lube, even though, and I was like when she kept talking about the baby oil, the baby oil, and I was like, what is he like rubbing oil all over their bodies to get them slick so that they slid around like hot dogs or something? (laughs) But he was using it as lube. And I remember being like, that can't be right. It cannot be. It's not right. She said, we were all getting infections from the baby oil. It wasn't supposed to be used as lube. I tried to tell him. I begged Mary to tell him. But you couldn't really tell him anything he didn't want to hear. We tried to replace the baby oil with lube. But when we weren't looking, he would always switch it back. I mean, that is something that you you just have to leave the mansion. I'm sorry. You can't be sleeping with a man three times a week who like refuses to just switch to lube. To avoid infections, I sometimes resorted to anal sex when it was my turn to straddle half. I don't think he ever could tell the difference, but it helped me avoid a host of frontal issues. It wasn't always the easiest, but it was the best solution I could think of. I can think of a second solution. You just have to leave. My fantasy that Hef and I would develop a real relationship was over not long after the season of Girls Next Door premiered. This wasn't a relationship. It was a job. And as soon as I accepted that reality, my panicky feelings began to lessen. My job was to perform. She did really try to get to know him. She really wanted to date him. And she would try to talk about her dad. And he just like did not want to speak to her. So she was like, okay, I get it. Hef's public persona, the narrative that everyone bought into was of a powerful man who used that power to elevate women, fight for civil rights and champion the First Amendment. He was the poster boy for sexual liberation. I never felt very liberated in his bedroom. I mean, yeah. I didn't want to be the ex-main girlfriend of Hugh Hefner handing out t-shirts at monster truck rallies. I didn't know what I wanted to be or do when I grow up. This modern day harem I joined that I was the leader of was my best option. That I felt very, like, was very honest. I do think that the way she was like, the reason I couldn't leave is because I, not even like I had nowhere to go. It's like, I just didn't even know where to start. Or like, I knew what my options were and like, I like this one better. Yeah. This part though. In college, I learned about the sunk cost fallacy, which is that someone is so heavily invested in something they don't walk away, even if it would be better for them if they did. A gambler who's lost thousands will bet their last hand on one last round and lose it instead of escaping with that little last bit. A real estate investor keeps pouring money into a bad deal instead of accepting the initial loss. I was deep in the throes of sunk cost fallacy. I'd invested so much that I couldn't just walk away. So that is her just not understanding the fallacy word. Like she invested so much in the sunk cost. I guess the fallacy that there is a sunk cost, but for her to be like, I invested so much I couldn't walk away. That is her not understanding the word fallacy. (laughs) So then she talks about doing promo and how hard it was to do promo for Girls Next Door. And she's like, the mansion did not prepare me for anything. They did not get me any media training. They did not get me a publicist. There was a publicist for the show, but she was like, I just wasn't prepared at all. All they cared about was how I looked. And she would get ripped apart by these interviewers. I'm torn because she is so upset that all these people ever wanted to talk about was 
her sex life and dating Hef. And she goes, they all thought I was some sort of sex worker or a sexual deviant. All they want to talk about was her body and how she looked. Unfortunately, that's what she's famous for. She is doing promo for a TV show where the hook is this sex worker is dating an old man. And I agree that there's more to a woman than her sexuality and her body. But the problem is she has objectified and commodified herself. And now that commodity is being like traded. And if I was at the AVN Awards interviewing porn stars, I feel like we would talk about sex. Yeah. And I don't think that I would be crossing a line. I do think to interview Hugh Hefner's girlfriend about being a Playboy playmate and on a TV show about dating Hugh Hefner, it's not crazy. Especially because that is why she is being interviewed at that moment. Like the literal, that's what I'm saying is like, you can't be like, I'm here to promote a TV show about being a Playboy playmate girlfriend and be like, don't ask me about my relationship or my body. Right. That's like what you've, signed up to talk about that's who you've become she's like that's, they act like that's all there was to me but I'm like you weren't allowed to think or do anything else right like I think that there are certain things when a celebrity like if Jennifer Lawrence doesn't want to be asked about the Hunger Games now like what is she at that interview for if she's doing a press junket for the Hunger Games it's just about the Hunger Games yeah yeah I don't know like what should they have asked you about <laughs> I had no idea it would feel worse than high school bullying because these were grown men and women who judged me for my clothing and hair color and my Playboy address. That was the whole premise. They're not judging you. I mean, they were, but they were like, because that is what was put up for consumption was that you lived at the house. That was the whole thing. Yeah. She's like, it said more about them than me. I have to say, it did actually say a lot about you because these are like your choices. Yeah. I'm not saying that's all there is to you and I'm not saying you should be held accountable for it forever. I'm not going to like go up to you on the street and be like, you made this choice when you're 21. But I do think if you're doing a TV show and promoting that TV show and that TV show is about the life choices you've made and then somebody asks you about it, that does reflect you. I don't know what else you want. Well, the weird part is one of the examples she brings up is that Chelsea Handler makes fun of basically the fact that her dad died and says she has daddy issues. I'm like, that is hugely crossing a line. That's such a fucked up thing to do. But to just like ask about the Playboy Mansion and her boobs, that's kind of the whole thing. Then she meets this guy who's like, oh, if you ever need to get away from the mansion, you can use my beach house. And once again, the free beach house was a trap. He tried to blackmail her and he called the Playboy Mansion and said that she was hooking up with randos at his beach house, cheating on Hef, and they paid him for him to shut up. Ultimately, they would pay off any blackmail because the worst thing that could happen in the Playboy Mansion is that Hef's reputation as a perfect man would get out. This is what's so funny. She's like, Hef just couldn't stand the idea of people thinking he wasn't a perfect lover that no woman could leave. And I was like, uh-oh, he's going to have a hard time with what people think then. <laughs> so I don't think that anybody is under the idea that he is like satisfying sexually these 24-year-olds. We're all very aware that they're at his house because of the money and the fame and the proximity of power. I don't think anybody was looking at Kendra, Holly, and Bridget and going, those are women who are coming a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not from the fake sex they're having with each other. <laughs> I mean, we were interested because we were like being fed these sex workers as like a weird like American dream yeah I mean that's what the, it's so weird the way she's like stop treating me like a sex worker that's you said the rent at this house was having sex with him and you did live there so I'm assuming it's just so weird the way that these first girlfriends are like if I was a sex worker wouldn't I have made money <laughs> and you're like I would have <laughs> yeah that's the question we all have <laughs> So then they get engaged, which this part I found so interesting. The engagement was they watched The Little Mermaid, which is her favorite movie because she is essentially still a teenager. 
And he knows she loves that movie. And he gives her this like beautiful box that is like a little mermaid box. And then in the music box is a ring. And he gives it to her. And she's like, wait, what? And then she puts it on. He says, I hope it fits. A press release goes out that they're engaged. And she keeps on harping on this fact that he never asks and she never said yes. She just got swept into this engagement. And she had thought it was weird that there was like a bunch of cameras in the room for Christmas morning. But it turns out that he had already sold the concept of a TV show called Marrying Hef, which would be a reality show featuring her marrying him. Yeah. And so this was like the beginning of it. I wasn't sure if it was a real proposal or a real marriage or just something for the show. And Hef didn't seem like he wanted to talk about it except for in front of the cameras. Then she gets into how like she felt like she did need to stay with him because she had to protect him. He was deeply insecure and made up for it by surrounding himself with people who would fawn over him and make him feel adored. And that's why she felt sad for him because his first ever crush went on a hayride with someone else. Damn. It really is true that if you are a man's first crush and you don't marry him, you are ruining some other girl's life. I didn't know whether to be sad for Heff or angry. He was so desperate for love and adoration, but he had no clue how to give it to anyone else. All he knew how to do was manipulate and leverage his power. Oh my God. That is so sad. Can you imagine if you knew someone who was like a serial killer and you were like, oh my God, I felt so sad for them because what they wanted was a girlfriend, but every time they met a girl, they accidentally murdered her. (laughs) On purpose. On purpose. They were so overcome with love. She also gets a cover. And so she's kind of like, well, this is what I get. You marry half, you get a cover. You want a cover, you have to marry half. She is finally getting paid for the first time. She didn't get paid for Girls Next Door, but she's getting $2,500 for the entire thing as a talent fee. Meanwhile... Hef is going to make 800 grand. So she talks to him and says, I think I should get more money. And he was like, well, what are you in this for? And so she storms out of the mansion. She felt so cheap. She felt so shitty. She was like, this is a job. I'm being the star of a TV show. So she storms out of the room, goes into her car. And as she's driving towards the gate, she hears, close the gate. He boomed. If Crystal tries to leave, detain her. I stopped. My whole body went cold. Detain her. So she's like, okay, I thought that I was acting dramatic and saying I was a prisoner in the mansion, but I think I might actually be a prisoner. She's like, yeah, I thought it was like I was a prisoner of my own self esteem problems. I didn't know I was like literally being held hostage here. So then she starts concocting a plan to get out. Yeah. So she starts trying to make money. She decides to start pocketing some of her allowance and saving it in a savings account, which she had never done before, I guess. Well, we knew this from the other things, but they do take account of what you're spending it on. And you're supposed to be spending it on things you need to be a good girlfriend. So like outfits, hair, accessories, workout classes, and you have to show receipts. I don't think you have to show receipts. I think you have to like be the receipt. She starts putting away a little bit of money each week, a couple hundred dollars out of her thousand dollar allowance. She also starts doing appearances because now she's been in Playboy. So she like gets a job to stand next to Lil John, And she's like, wait, I could be a DJ and make money like that. And she also starts doing social media ads and advertising products on her Instagram. And she starts pocketing a good amount of money. Not a good amount. I guess she says it wasn't really much at all. But I think it was kind of a lot because then later she's like, I was buying property to flip around L.A. Yeah. She's like, I didn't have enough money to leave, but I did buy two houses and flip them for a profit. And I invested in the stock market. She got really into crypto. Yeah. She also wants to put out an album. She's like, well, my dad was a musician, so it must be in my veins. So she gets hooked up with Jordan McGraw, Dr. Phil's son. If you met Jordan McGraw. Okay, so she opens up to Jordan McGraw. They had not had a romantic relationship. They just became good friends and collaborators. But like right away, he's like, tell me about your life. Tell me about yourself. And he goes, you need to talk to my dad. So they drive to Dr. Phil's house. 
And he's like, look, here's the bottom line. You're a 25 year old woman. You're young, vibrant. You have your whole life ahead of you. You shouldn't be trapped in that house. And suddenly she's like, oh my God, somebody believes in me. Nobody's been nice to me before. I have to get out. So Jordan sends her a photo of his closet and he's like, this is for you. It's a half empty closet. And she's like, okay, I'll just move out and be with Jordan. Gradually, secretly, I moved my stuff out. Every time she left on an errand, she would like bring a little bit of stuff over. She was saving the money. And then one day during movie time, she casually slipped out like she was going to the bathroom, went upstairs, grabbed her last few things, went into her car and then went to the security booth. And they were like, well, where are you going? It's movie night. And she's like, I just need some tampons. And then she drives away and she never went back. She has no idea what happened when he realized the tablets pick it up. This was days before their wedding. Yeah. With 300 guests, Paris Hilton and the like. Paris Hilton is more than happy to sit front row to Anybody. anybody's demise. <laughs> when the world burns, Paris Hilton will be DJing at that event. Yeah. <laughs> she will be making an appearance fee as we like catapult through the heavens into hell. All money will turn to ash as it becomes Paris Hilton's. <laughs> so she finds herself worrying about Hef because she has Stockholm Syndrome, of course, which I heard is made up. Anyway, she told Ryan Seacrest it was a mutual decision, but Hef is doing press being like, I've been left. I've been dumped. She's a dirty whore. And she's trying to make friends and like have people outside the mansion, but she cannot trust anybody. Is she though? Really? I don't know. Mostly she says she spends every waking minute with Jordan, who's like going bananas doing this outpouring of love. Yeah. And then she realizes that Jordan is a liar and she's like, oh my God, he was Owen all over again. And it's like, what did you think Jordan was? Things started out pretty quickly with Jordan. His displays of affection were still over the top, but there was an emptiness at the core of it. I had a nagging sense that something wasn't genuine, that I couldn't really trust him, but I chalked it up to my own insecurity and fear. By the way, Jordan McGraw is who's currently married to Morgan Stewart. Weird. Basically, Crystal's like, he was just buying shit for me constantly and he was so spoiled. Jordan told his mom he needed a bigger house to listen to his records in, so he moved into a $6 million mansion in Beverly Hills. He loved Disney movies like I did, so his parents built an exact replica of the fountain from Nightmare Before Christmas. They're at the Viper Room. Jordan's auditioning people for his band that is obviously fake. Look at my son, Dr. Phil says. He bagged himself a playmate. I felt stupid for thinking anyone valued me for anything real. I was just a thing to be bagged. He had me fooled too. And then she's like, also, he had a weird relationship with his mom. They were overly enmeshed and codependent. She eventually found emails from his mom being like, you should dump Crystal. I'll dump Crystal for you if you want. And so she leaves in the night. So then she's like, okay, I didn't even do any work on myself. I left for one man to another man. I have to like do something for myself. So she starts a business with a brick and mortar store, which is like a crate. Like, yeah, her and her friend start a lingerie business. And then it turns out she can't trust that friend and the business goes under. And she has been out of the mansion for only six months at this point. And she goes, but I was failing spectacularly at everything I tried. I had nothing to show for it. Nothing. Everything had fallen apart. My relationship, my friendship, my business. And then Mary calls her and is like, do you want to come back? And it turns out Hef had been calling her mom trying to get her back. And she just went back tail between her legs. Her mom was like, give him another chance, Crystal. You're doing nothing in the real world. Go back to the mansion. And she's like, damn, that is so true. I am not succeeding in the real world. So she just goes back. She's like, I tried the real world and I couldn't hack it. And this is what's so sad to me is six months. It takes longer than that to establish yourself as a person. So she goes back because now Hef was afraid of me leaving and that little power was power enough. She cleaned out the other girlfriends. There would be no more of this constant competition. But the problem was now when they had sex, it had to be solo. She's like, except for that, we had group activity sex still. And she's like, which was fine. I hated having sex with him alone. 
And sometimes when it was just me, I'd call it my friend Amber. And then at the end, I'd go, Amber needs gas money. I'm going to give her a couple grand. They got married pretty quickly after she went back, New Year's Eve 2012. The last day of the year, I was 26 and he was 86. They weren't allowed to really invite anybody. So the only guest she was allowed to have was her mom and her stepfather. And then Mary was her maid of honor. Yikes. She had to sign a prenup and she took it to a lawyer to have it notarized. And the lawyer was like, oh, my God, no, you can't sign this. And so then she had to take it to another lawyer who would just notarize whatever. She was like, I'm looking for somebody who will just sign whatever and not help me negotiate because I don't care. As Hef's wife, I suddenly didn't have to say yes to everything or accommodate his every whim. I had more agency, more free will, but I had to pick my battles. I think he was just a little bit afraid of me and the possibility that I could rock his carefully controlled world again. I do think it's so interesting that she never acts like they had any sort of connection. Like they were never in love. It was all so transactional. Which is true, of course. Like, if she was saying anything else, I'd be like, no way. But she does kind of say she loved him the way you're supposed to love an elder. Like, she cared for him. She was his caretaker. Right. There are these weird moments of people absolutely betraying Hef that, like, kind of instill this belief that she has to protect him. For example, he gets a lot of gifts and he would send them to be cataloged and stored. And she went to the storage and found out that his entire staff was just always stealing. Like, all of the gifts were gone. And it is one of these things where I just don't care that Hef got robbed. It's also so funny. I'm like, well, what would they have done in storage? So I feel like she really is like, see, I was the only one looking out for him. See, people took advantage of him. Everyone was out to take something from him. And it's like, I don't know. He was out to take something from everyone. Yeah. She is very upset by the fact that she feels like the only reason anyone cares about her is because she's Hef's wife. She talks about time and time again how almost every time someone came up to her at the mansion, it's because they wanted her to ask Hef a favor for them. This was like sometimes she got gifts that were meant to be given to Hef. She's like, I would have friends with these playmates. And then it turns out they would want me to ask Hef to do something. And I am like, I do feel the same way I felt about the PR. When you have made your value being someone's wife, you can't be upset when people value for being his wife. Yeah. Like if that was your job in your life and your title, like that is what you got from him. You got a job title. Yeah. So she knows that she's not going to get any money if her and Hef get divorced. And I wonder why she ever thought they would get divorced. I'm sorry. That is crazy. (laughs) He has like five minutes left. Just wait. (laughs) So she's getting really into social media, crypto, stock market. She's DJing every Saturday in Vegas at the Hard Rock Hotel for $7,500. She's flipping houses. I really want to know what she thinks a lot of money is. She like buys property like it's candy. I mean, to be making $7,500 every Saturday. Yeah. With no expenses. She's doing well. Yeah. Hef's health is failing and he's beginning to rely on her more and more. He can't walk very well. He's like not always very alert. And then she gets sick. So she starts feeling horrible, like heavy and just dragging and bad. And doctors are telling her it's stress. No one believes her. And finally, she is diagnosed with a combination of implant sickness. Her implants are killing her. Lyme disease. She doesn't know how she got a tick, but boy, was there a tick. And mold poisoning. It turns out the mansion is covered in mold. And she's like, yeah, this made sense because every time it rained, everything would leak and it never got fixed. He lived in a hoarder house where nothing was ever changed or fixed or cleaned properly. And she said they had to exterminate for black mold and they found it everywhere. And it was especially concentrated in the vent right above her little vanity. That was the one place she was allowed to sit. That's crazy. So she's taking medication. She like really was like, I let my hair go back to brunette. I got my implants taken out. I was a whole different person. And who cares? 
She's like, Hef didn't really seem to notice her mind. And I'm like, he was also 90. Maybe he couldn't see you. Yeah. <laughs> but she's like, but he also didn't seem to care that I was sick. I was like, I think he forgot you were there. I think he thought you were like a nurse staff. So... So she decides to use her time by just cataloging everything in the mansion because it is, again, a hoarder house. And one thing she finds that is so disturbing is all of these photos, like Polaroid photos of girls flashing their entire bodies to have in limousines. Like every girlfriend, every girl who's ever been to one of their like club nights. He would have them pull up their skirts and like flash him and he would take a photo. And she shreds all of the photos. It's the one thing she won't catalog. She just gets rid of them all. And I do think it's very interesting that she has these moments, the VHSs that he was recording sex without women's permission, these photos that he was keeping of these women wanting to be buried next to Marilyn Monroe. I find it very interesting the way she like clocks these things and then doesn't apply any judgment to them. To me, it feels like, I don't know, she's just putting it there for us and being like, I said, I'd only say good things. So here's the thing. Take it. No, I mean, obviously she is upset about it. She like She's upset have- about it. But I think the way she just like places these things is very interesting. Like, you know, she's specifically being like, I'm not going to say only good things anymore. Here's how it really was. Yeah. Like, she's saying it to be like, he's gross. Well, then, to me, it's a bad thing about her. (laughs) It's, like, weird that she can recognize he's doing bad things and not consider him a bad man. Yes. It's weird that she can recognize the way he's so sexually exploitive. And then still, she's like, no, everyone in America thinks of him as this, like, sexually liberated genius. But he actually is exploiting women sexually. I mean, it is so fucking disgusting to be this person who's created this entire empire based on having women come and like try to be photographed by you and still feel the need to to have photos that like are not consensually given. Yeah. Because these are women who are having sex with you with the hope of being photographed nude and you won't give them that, but you will do it without telling them. I mean, like the need to be doing something without consent is like so rapey and disgusting. Yes. He is really a horrible man. What I find very upsetting is that she clocks these things, she notices them, and she still thinks that he is someone that women and people are taking advantage of. And she still thinks that he is someone that like she has to be married to to have the life she wants. Yeah. It's one thing to let it happen to yourself, to look at this woman and say, oh, she is about to ruin her life. But hey, he needs to have sex with somebody. The way that she's so willing to take other people, like to allow other people to be exploited around her too. Yes. I mean, she participates in it. She's the Ghislaine. Yes. So then she meets another guy named Diego. And much like Jordan, he lets her have conversations. But he is not like Jordan in that he actually does care. So they begin an affair. She likes being seen by a man. At this point, our only intimacy was when I held his hand or kissed his cheek. I was a full-time companion now, his caretaker in every way. Guardian of his health, his image, his legacy. Our relationship was about me being there when he needed me, which was just about always. Hef's health is failing further. He needs a walker. He had at one point fallen in front of all of his friends at movie night and everyone is, you know, he's so humiliated. He can't believe that people are going to find out that he's aging. He also then fought kind of hard at the end of his life to make sure she had something. They had obviously signed a prenup and all of his money was tied up in a foundation and trusts and like Playboy stock. So it was all set aside for his kids. But he did a few things here and there. He found a Playboy retirement account that he put in her name. He also bought a house with her in their joint name so that when he died, she'd have a place to live. Maybe he was trying to buy my time to keep me at his side. He'd always wanted a happy ending in his mansion, surrounded by his legacy and his beautiful bride. Maybe he figured she didn't cut and run like the other girls. She deserves it. Maybe it was a transaction to him like so much was. I'd put in the time and now he was cutting me a paycheck. Maybe it was because I didn't ask for it. It's so interesting that she feels that other women cut and ran. 
when like he would cut them as soon as they stopped being agreeable. And she just never really stopped being agreeable, except for that one time that she left him at the altar. Or maybe he really loved me in some way. Then he gets an infection and dies. Alone. They said in the clip that like he died with family by his side, but that's not true. Crystal was with him, but his daughter didn't get back in time. And it doesn't seem like any of his sons came to see him. All of the statements she said read so like business-like and no one seemed to have clear-cut feelings of love for him. But it doesn't seem like anyone had a loving relationship with him. He didn't have conversations with anyone. She didn't know what to do afterwards. And the mansion had been sold to a billionaire who basically said, you can live in it until Hef dies. But then once he dies, you all have to get out. And she just didn't want to leave. She didn't know what to do. She says, I thought of the miners I had watched on television years ago, emerging from a cave collapse. They had been trapped in their eyes, blinking at the sudden light of day. The overwhelm at the crowd and the press of people, the shock of freedom after what was most likely a dark acceptance of their fate. When you've been living so long in a weird and dark world, how do you transition back to the light? I cannot believe that her and Plato stumbled upon the exact same allegory. <laughs> I cannot believe that she was just like, wait a minute. You know, it's like such a good example of finding truth for the first time, coming out of a cave and adjusting to the light. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. Actually, a lot of people would agree with you. She goes and looks at some of the scrapbooks. She looks back at the young version of herself who showed up at the mansion that night. And she realizes there's a lot that she would not change. Something really weird to me is that they end up burying him and they have a small burial. Mm -hmm. It's just her, her mom, her stepdad, and then his kids and maybe one or two other people, like one of his assistants. And she's the one who's left sobbing and like there with his urn in the casket or whatever. And I'm like, I guess she was his closest family. Like, and what are his kids' relationships to him? I'm actually... So sick of Playboy memoirs. I can't do another one. Thank God that man is dead. I cannot wait to never have to hear this goddamn story again in my life because it's a story I've read 10 times. Of course, if Bridget does one, we will do it. But <laughs> that being said, I would read Christy Hefner's book. I'm very interested in what it was like to be raised as his daughter. Yes. I'm very interested in what it was like. What are her feelings about him? Yes. Where were his sons? He has like four sons. Why weren't they at the funeral? I don't know. So now she's out there on her own trying to figure out who she is. She doesn't know. Who she would have been if she hadn't married Hef. One of her friends is like, you would have figured something out. You've always been destined for something big. It was very sweet to say, but I didn't have his confidence. Confidence. It was something I had never had, ever. She had felt very loyal, and I don't know why. I guess suddenly she's like, no, I'm allowed to tell my story. I think she did a lot of work on herself in the last few years. A lot? A lot. Okay. She used to think that every single thing was only dependent on your looks. And she shared that value with Hef. And she realized that she had been raised in this way where her looks were so valuable. She was hooking up with a guy that was really hot. And he was like, I don't think you'd like me if I wasn't hot. And she was like, oh, my God, he was so right. I had to learn that people had value, too. So she's looking in the mirror. She doesn't like how she looks. She left the mansion twice and didn't learn a goddamn thing. It really is crazy how impervious she is to digging deep. Hopefully she's gotten there. But she was really unhappy with how she looked, so she decided she was going to get work done. I fell for a new procedure I'd heard about, fat transfer surgery. They took fat from one part of your body and moved it into your breasts. I rationalized that it was all natural since it was my fat. I almost died on the operating table. I went down that road looking for love, acceptance, and success. I lived in that house, and I lost far too much. She does come to the significant realization that in order to succeed in the Playboy Mansion, you have to lose all sense of self, which she hardly had to begin with. And so she starts building it back up. She goes to an event and she meets a woman named Anne. And it's like the first time she's ever had friends. And she and Anne 
have real deep conversations and no one's ever cared about her thoughts or her feelings or her experiences before without an ulterior motive. And so opening up to Anne is like a very important moment in her life. She's never had a friend before. So she's like looking through all the books. She's on the Hugh Hefner Foundation. So she helps keep his legacy alive. And she goes to the place where they keep all of the records sealed. She was looking through one recently and she saw a quote, life is too short to be living somebody else's dream. I'd heard him say that before, but never to any women, certainly never to the women he called his girlfriends, his babies, his beauties. He never said that to me, his wife. But as I walked out of Iron Mountain and started the drive to my new home, I thought it might be the best advice I'd ever heard. There is no neat ending to this fairy tale, and that's okay. I'm not looking for fairy tale endings any longer. I think it's so funny. I'm like, nobody should look for a fairy tale ending in their 20s. Things don't end in your 20s. I don't know. She thought that you were supposed to have things figured out, and so she went to a place where she thought things would get figured out for her, and that was not the truth. But I do think a lot of people do that. I do think a lot of people make a decision because they think other people know things that they don't know. But the truth is that everyone has to figure out their life for themselves. There is no shortcut. Life is short, but I'm finally ready to start living my own dream. It's not that big, glamorous dream of fame and fortune that I thought it would be. My dream is simple. Happiness, friendship, love, truth. See? That is growth. She found out that the key to life is not money and success. The key to life is happiness, friendship, love, and truth. And that is true. Okay, final thoughts about this book. You know, I think she acknowledged a lot more uncomfortable truth than many of the other gals we This was better than Holly's. Yes. By a lot. And if you're only going to read one, read this one because at least it's shorter and it gets to the point. And I think that she is putting forth an effort at personal growth and discovery. And I don't think it's ever too late for anyone to take a shot at personal growth and discovery. Thank you. Amen. How fertile would you consider this soil? Three. I will say, if you haven't read any of the other memoirs and you wanted to like read a Playboy memoir, you could pick this up, read it on a train ride in like three hours. Yeah. And it has the info you're looking for. Like, did they actually have sex? What was the blah, blah, blah. blah. I feel like she like gets down to the details and the answers. You'll learn about it. You'll never think about it again. Yeah. I would say like a three and a half if you read other Playboy books. I would say like a four if you haven't because it has a lot in here we just have read a lot of it already four i mean playboy is still like a gigantic corporation surrounded in lore yeah true true but would you ever want to have a warm teeny with crystal hefner not really i don't need it i don't think i would either i mean i wouldn't be against it like if she was my friend's friend if she was my friend's cousin and we were all at the same birthday dinner it'd be fine that being said we would have drinks with you our favorite worms our five star wormies Thank you so much to our beautiful five-star reviewing Wormies. I love you to the moon and then back and then back to the moon again. Two or three round trips to be safe. Thank you so much to Heather Coos1193. You are the koozie to my ice cold beer. Just the thing that keeps me warm and happy. That keeps my hand warm and happy. I don't know. A good thing, you know? Can you dig it? Thank you so much. I can dig it. And there is nothing I dig more than a beautiful review like this one. Music Snob 20854. You and I are two peas in the cutest little snobbiest pod. Maria the Cloud, I would love to rest my head upon your soft, fluffy, cotton candy-like finish. Thank you, Pulpy Allet Jewelry. There is nothing that glistens more than a beautiful Pulpy Allet review. 
Lindsay does. You are my designated gem in a sea of reviews. Thank you so much for your five stars. I love you.